Mark chapter 9, we're going to be starting around verse 30. Um, so if you've been in here this year, you've heard this said several times, and we'll just kind of keep saying it to kind of help us with lenses to see what's going on in Mark. But um, the book of Mark comes in, and, and Mark spends the first half of the book highlighting and pointing out how Jesus is the Messiah. He's king. He has all, all authority and power. He has authority over creation, over disease and sickness, over um, the demonic spirits, over death. And, uh, and he, he, is, he deserves our worship and, and our devotion. And, and then about halfway through chapter 8 and towards the end of chapter 8, beginning of 9, he, he switches. And all of a sudden, the, the, the Messiah and the King who, de, who deserves our worship and, and our, our honor and who has all authority and power... He's going to usher into his kingdom through death and suffering, through suffering and death. And so the rest of chapter, chapter of Mark 9 through 16 is, is Mark highlighting and helping us see that the king, the Messiah, is going to suffer and die. And, and this common theme that we've seen already last week, and we're going to see again this week, is that the disciples just aren't getting it. They're not understanding. And, and honestly, partly, I don't... I don't I don't blame them because what, what he's going to do is something that no one has ever done. It's, it, would, it would have been unheard of, and so it, it would be normal for them to, to not understand what's going on. But Mark seems to be wanting to highlight their, their kind of disconnectedness to, to what, he, what he's about to do. Again, um, what he's going to do is so different and so upside down that... Uh, that he needs to continue to remind them and explain to them that his ways are just different than their way than their ways, and so what what we see happening in in our section today, um, last week it ended with the disciples um, not being able to heal this or to exercise this demon from this boy, and then not understand why they couldn't do it, and Jesus had to teach them a new way, had to remind them of the right way the, of, of this the way of prayer. And, and this theme kind of continues on through the rest of chapter 9, that Jesus is going to um, spend some alone time with his, his disciples, teaching them lessons of, of His way, of His kingdom. And, and so we're going to see about eight different lessons that, that I've drawn out of, of these, these verses, uh, of Jesus teaching His disciples, actually discipling His disciples. And so on a side note, I want you to notice what, what Jesus does here. Um, notice this isn't a classroom. No, this, this, isn't, uh, this isn't lecture style. This is, this is him doing life with them, him walking along the road, him traveling from one place to another. And along the way, conversations happen, and Jesus hears them, and he's able to point them to him and point them to the right way of thinking about him and, and, uh, and, and highlight and point out where they're wrong. And so we're going to see that a couple times in, in Mark chapter 9 today. I'm going to need someone to read, but I'm going to pray. And then one of you on the front row is going to be chosen, selected. And uh, we'll see who it is. Apparently it's not Rachel. She's saying no. Uh, let me pray. God, thank you for the, the, the time that we get to spend here and in, in, uh, in spend in your word. And I ask God that your word would speak loudest. That your truth would, would be proclaimed and... Um, God, that you would be honored in our time today. 
I ask that you would help us to see Jesus in a way that's new and fresh, in a way that speaks deeply to, um, to where you have us. And, and God, may we be turned back to your truth and challenged to um, fulfill, out, fulfill the things that you've called us to do. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, who's it going to be? Who wants to read? Who's excited? N- nobody's excited. Okay, Arnisha's going to read Mark chapter 9. Yeah, she's real excited. Mark chapter 9, do 30 through 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they went, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and were afraid to ask him about it. Okay. So, this is, uh, I think in this first verse is where we see what, what Mark is trying to say. He didn't want anyone to know where he was. He was just with his disciples. To me, that's a, a little bit of a clue that, that Jesus is wanting to spend some intentional time with his disciples to teach them his ways, to remind them of who he is and what he's about to do and how that impacts them because it's going to impact them. And we see this in this text um, with them being afraid. So the first lesson is, is that in, in Jesus' kingdom, the king suffers, dies, and rises from the dead. I and mean, this, is, this, is this is the way God chose to, to um, usher in his kingdom, to bring about redemption and restoration in all the world, is by Jesus suffering and dying and then conquering death, rising from the dead. And of course, this isn't the first time he said this to them. He's saying it plainly. This is the second time he said this to them. And and um, it says they, they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask him about it. So why would they be afraid to ask them about it? We don't know. Um, it doesn't say why. Um, some options are that they were afraid that uh, they were afraid of, it, of who might deliver him. It says this is, this is different than the others. It says he will be delivered into the hands. So who's going to do that? Who's going to deliver him into the hands? Um, the other one didn't say it that way. So maybe they're caught up on that. Like, who, who, who's going to, is it I? You know, um, if you've seen a passion play, you've probably heard that. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Um, you had to be there. Yeah. Th- th- thanks, for the, thanks for the sympathy left. Um, so are, are, they, are they afraid of that? Are they afraid that, that his death might mean their death? I mean, think about it. If he's their closest disciples, if he's their followers, if he's their, their guys, and if he's going to suffer and die, what's going to happen to them? I mean, I think that would strike some fear in them. Or, um, or does it mean that his death might mean the end of their significance? So, we don't know exactly what they're afraid of, but we know that this last one seems, I don't know if that's the reason, but it seems this is the direction they go. And, and Mark's going to highlight it here. So read Mark 9, 33 through 37. They came, for, they came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, where were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, 
Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Okay. So this first, uh, well, their, their fear of, of, of what Jesus might mean by him suffering and dying and rising from the dead, it quickly turns to who's, gonna, who's the greatest? Like, who's going to be the like, right-hand man to Jesus in this kingdom? And, and um, what, what's, what's not crazy, it's not crazy that they would ask that question again, in their in their understanding of kingdom, this is Jesus is going to rule with the with the sword. He's going to he's going to take take back authority from the Romans. He's going to um, rule with authority and power, and and they're going to be right there with him, fighting alongside of him. And so it wasn't crazy for them to think about okay, who's gonna who's gonna do what? Who's gonna be in charge of what? What what seems to be what Mark is highlighting is that they don't they still aren't getting it, um, and. And his that his ways are not are not their their ways, and so this first lesson seems to be pretty big. That to be great in his kingdom, you must be a servant of all. They're focused on who's going to be over what, and his whole thing is no. You're you're going to be a servant. This is this is your this is your job. This is what it means to be great in my kingdom is to be a servant. First lesson, second lesson that he's teaching them. This is a big one. And we'll spend some more time talking about this one. The next one is, is that care for those who are insignificant and not for yourself to be significant. And here's what I mean by that. The first century culture um, did not have this um, cute or, or romanticized view of children like, like we do. Um, so the comparison that, that Mark is making is not to, um, it's not to how, you know, you should be like children in that children are obedient and they're trusting and they're simple and they're pure and they're innocent. That's not the comparison he's making. Um, he's contrasting greatness and, and insignificance. They're talking about greatness and he's, he's trying to highlight their insignificance See, the disciples wanted to be great. The children were insignificant. In other words, the children had no power, no status, and very few rights. And um, this one commentary is describing it this way. He said that they were, de- they were dependent, vulnerable, and entirely subject to the authority of their father. So, he says, instead of focusing on, what, on who's going to be greatest, let's focus on paying attention to those who can't elevate your status. That, that's, that's what little children would be. Care for, care for these little ones. Yeah, but they don't do anything for me, Jesus. I know. Care for them. All right, next section, 38 through 41. Arnisha. Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything about, can say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Okay. So this is, this is kind of a, I think there's some irony here that the disciples are really upset about someone um, 
exercising a demon because just a few minutes before, or a few sections before, they couldn't do it, right? So they couldn't do something that this guy's doing, and he's not even a part of their group. Um, and so you see the disciples um, still wrestling with this, like, I thought, wait a minute, I thought we were in. Like, I thought we were kind of at another level. I thought we were somewhat of an elite group, Jesus. So we stopped that guy because he wasn't a part of us. He didn't have our authority that, that you gave us. And, and Jesus puts a stop to that. And so Jesus says, listen, don't be jealous of others' fame, um, but be jealous for the elevation of Jesus' name, of my name, he says. You know, he's, he's, he's doing this in my name. Let him do it in my name. Let my name be elevated. Let my name be, be glorified. And don't stop him. And this reminds me of this story in Numbers 11. It's a great story. I think I referenced it several weeks ago. Um, great story in Numbers 11 where Moses is really just worn out trying to, trying to take care of the needs of the people of Israel. And, and so he asks God, God, I need some help. And so God says, okay, call 70, el- 70 elders or leaders in, pray over them, and they will receive the Holy Spirit. And when they receive the Holy Spirit, the, the ministry will be kind of diversified, and, and then they will take more of that from you. And um, so he calls the men in, he prays over them, they receive the Holy Spirit, they start prophesying instantly. And, but there's a few stragglers that didn't make it to the meeting. Okay? They were still back in camp. But they were still filled with the Holy Spirit and were prophesying in camp. And Joshua, Moses' right-hand man, a man of military um, status or thinking, sees, sees these men not doing it the way Moses told them to do it. And he comes to Moses and says, Moses, make them stop because they're not doing it right. Make them stop. And this is what Moses says. He says, are you jealous for my sake? He says, I wish that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on all of them. And I think you, you, you catch a sense of what Jesus is saying here. Like, who are, you, who are you jealous for? Like, you're trying to stop a really good thing that's being done in my name. Why would you stop that? And, and I think it has to do with their desire to be elite, their desire to be elevated and have some elevated status. Um, the, next, the next lesson we see here is that uh, he, he, he calls, he kind of points back to the, the children, to this little one. Um, he says, whoever gives a cup of water, kind of in my name, no, 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 not back to the children, that's the next one. Um, he says, whoever who give, gives a cup of water um, to drink because of who, and who belong to Christ, Will, will not lose a reward. In other words, he's saying, he's, Jesus is alluding to the, the difficulty that the disciples will face and that they will be in need. And so he says, people who show kindness, essentially, people who are showing kindness to Jesus' followers will be rewarded. Um, John, John is concerned about the, the competition. And he says, no, no, no. You, you, you're the kind of people that you're going to need compassion. You're going to, you're going to be in need, and you're going to need people to show compassion on you. Stop worrying about being, being competitive. All right. Um, read 42 through 48. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. 
If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and, and be thrown into hell. 48. Through 48. Oh, sorry. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay. So, there's some, some heavy things happening here. Here's the first lesson in this section. Lesson 6. Care more about the fragile faith of others and not about being first, about you being first in this, in this kingdom. You to care more about those things. Care more about the faith of others and taking care of them than you being, again, first or elevated. Jesus, of course, is using hyperbole um, when He's talking about better for you to be tied to a, a millstone and thrown into the, in, in, to the depths of the sea and drowned. And, um, and so clearly He's using this ex, ex, extreme language in order to prove a point of how serious this is. Um, I didn't know this. This is kind of interesting. The, the, the word great millstone literally reads millstone of a donkey. Why would it say millstone of a donkey? Well, there is this, the, the, the rotary mill had, had, a, had a stone so big that nobody could turn it. They had this big beast that would kind of, their job was to turn this thing to get the mill going. And so it became known as this like just giant millstone. This millstone of a donkey was this huge rock that no one could move except for this big beast. And so he, he's using, again, extreme language to prove this point. Care more about the fragile faith of others. Take care of people and stop trying to become first. In the next section, the, the list of things, cut off your hand, cut off your eyes, cut off your foot, uh, if those things cause you to sin because... It's better into the, enter the kingdom maimed than it is to enter hell whole, essentially, is what he's saying. And um, we know that Judaism, several times in the Old Testament, was pr- prohibited self-mutilation. So Jesus isn't, he's not speaking literally. He's obviously speaking with hyperbole, extreme language. Um, but he references hell. In fact, in, literally the word is Gehenna. And so here's a quick little background on Gehenna. Gehenna was referring to this valley south of Jerusalem. And in ancient times, when, when the people of, of Canaan were kind of more, more in charge, um, this is one of the reasons why we shouldn't feel so terrible for the, the poor Canaanites when, um, when the people of Israel would come in and wipe them out. Uh, because they were doing things like sacrificing children in this place. Um, uh, and, and so there was... There was lots of, the history of this place was kind of death and wickedness and darkness. And then it eventually became this trash dump where a fire would continually burn and where people could come and, and, and burn trash there. And so, um, again, there's this, it's, it's alluded to dark, wicked, unquenchable fire is kind of the, the what's, what's referencing Gehenna. And then, of course, he's, he's referring to hell in this. And so this is where we get some of our ideas, some of our picture of, of what hell, what Jesus is describing as, as hell. And so his, this second lesson is, care more about eradicating sin 
in your life and not about you being great. Care more about eradicating sin than about you being great. So care, care about people's faith, care about the fragileness of their faith and, and not leading people astray and care, care about eradicating, get, getting rid of um, uh, sin that would, that would lead you astray, that would cause you to, um, to, to walk away. And then the last section, read 49 and 50. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Okay. So, um, what version are you reading? NIV. NIV, okay. Uh, ESV has this line, for everyone will be salted with fire. Did, did, you, did yours say that? Yes. Okay, I didn't catch it. I wasn't paying attention. Um, <laughs> so here's, here's the last lesson. I didn't know how to, there's, there's really three different things he kind of hits at in, in this, as he uses salt as kind of an analogy. So this is the best I could do. You can learn a lot from salt. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll explain what I mean by that. Um, so here's three characteristics of of salt that uh, that salt was used in first century, right? Not something that we think about. We we use it for one of these, maybe two of these, but we don't really use it for the first one. The first one, obviously, is preservation and purification. Preservation is something. Instead of having refrigerators, they would use salt to preserve meat, to preserve things, um, and purification. Uh, this is an interesting, right down Leviticus 2.13, there's this reference how all the sacrifices, the, the grain sacrifices, and it, and, and it even says all your sacrifices, but specifically these grain sacrifices need to have salt on them. And, and it was kind of viewed as somewhat of a purification thing to, to their, it, it's what made the sacrifices pure in order to be sacrificed. <laughs> now we don't know exactly if that's what Jesus is alluding to, um, there's a couple references, not only in Leviticus 13, but a couple in Ezekiel <clears throat> about this idea. And so th- there's the thought that maybe Jesus is using this idea of pre- preserving, persevering, and, and being purified. And, and so when you, when you think about that with, in the context of fire and how fire is a purifying thing, it, there's a process that's involved, a purifying process. Um, so fire was, was this reference of judgment and, and um, refining process, right? And so, um, what do I have here? All salt, or as salt, um, preserves and purifies something so, um, so the, uh, we need to endure through, the, through a fire of testing and, and we will be purified as a community. So he's, he's kind of alluding to this idea, listen, you, you guys, as I teach you my way, you need, to, you need to persevere in this. You need to be preserved in this. And, and, and the testing of, of life and the fire, so to speak, is going to purify your commitment to me. And then he says, don't lose your saltiness. Um, so salt, this idea of flavor. He says, don't lose your... In other words, he's describing this distinct Christ-likeness, this, this upside-down way of, of living compared to the world. Um, that Jesus requires things like um, that that this demon can only be um, exercised by by prayer that 
that, uh, that you need to be least and a servant of all, that you need to welcome the insignificant ones and not, not try to be great. Like These are the, these are the things that, that are going to make you distinct in this world, and you need to keep your saltiness in that. <clears throat> and then lastly, he says, have, have salt among yourselves. And so um, salt has this permeating ability, and he's saying keep unity and, and be at peace with each other. Um, on the on the account of on the account of Christ's name again Christ's name he wanted it to be listen don't hinder my name from being proclaimed and being preached and and so he's he's using salt as a as an analogy for persevering and being purified through this this process um, remaining Christ likeness right being like Christ and having this this upside down way of thinking in this kingdom and then staying unified and being at peace with all. So, um, back to this, this idea of being great. What does it mean? Is that something that you wrestle with? Is this something that you struggle with to be significant? And so we're going to take a break, and then Drew's going to spend some time talking through that. Take about three minutes. We will get underway. Tonight. All right, so um, I wanted to I wanted to just chat with you a little bit. I was actually googling some of these four weeks before I came over here tonight. Um, what some people call evangelical catchphrases, or you may have heard the term Christianese before. Um, that idea that that we have in the church, and specifically kind of in the evangelical church, we have. A number of kind of phrases, we have our own language a lot of times to talk about life and to talk about faith. And, uh, and that is a lot of times kind of dogged as a bad thing and that it's hard for someone to come in and, and grasp what we're talking about when we talk in this Christianese. Um, I don't know that it's all bad. Um, the, the truth of the matter is sometimes like a non-believer is just not going to understand like doctrine things and not going to understand Christian um, thought and some of the way we, we think about things. Um, so, so I don't know that it's all bad, but there are some cases in which it's, it's a little off or a little weird, um, specifically when we get into um, phrases um, that we throw around so often that they become kind of a part of what our faith is, but we never pause to, to consider this fact that those things are never anywhere in the Bible. Um, that those phrases in themselves, we don't find them in the Bible. And, and some of them are not necessarily harmful or bad, like um, quiet time. Um, talking about having a personal quiet time. That, that's one of those things in which the concept is biblical, even if the phrase itself is not. And so this idea that I would try to take some time to study and, and be in God's Word to know it and to pray and seek Him. Like, that's a biblical idea, even if, even if that phrase, the quiet time, or to have a daily quiet time, isn't necessarily in the Bible anywhere. There's some that are, that are a little more, I think, harmful. Um, that's when you take something that's that neither the term nor the concept is anywhere in Scripture, like this one, the sinner's prayer. I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure you've heard that. The sinner's prayer, that's what you pray when you want to get saved. That's actually sort of what you pray. That's actually what you repeat after somebody when you want to get saved, right? Dear Lord, dear Lord, I am a sinner. I am a sinner, right? Um, I said that, I remember, I got saved. You guys know uh, 
the uh, Guts Church in Tulsa, like the, the what's it called, the, the Halloween scare you thing. Nightmare, that's right, that's right. I got saved like three times at that thing. Um, and I remember literally going to that thing, and it was freaky. There's nothing, I, was, I remember being freaked out. And then afterwards, they'd always have somebody there who would ask if, if, if they could pray with you, if you wanted to pray with them. And I was like, yeah, sure, that's great, you know. And so they asked me, you know, what would you like to pray about? You know, just that I would be more faithful in my walk, da, da, da. And so I remember this guy sitting there and, like, praying with me. And so he's praying, and I got my head bowed, and all of a sudden he's like, all right, now repeat after me, dear Lord. And I'm like, dear Lord. And he says, uh, I am a sinner. And in my mind I'm going, Is it? I mean, I guess I, I am a sinner. You know, and that part way through this, like, I'm realizing, I think I'm getting saved. Like, I think I'm, I think I'm becoming a Christian again. Um, but, but this is, uh, this is like one of those things that we, we do and we talk about. So, how does a person, how does a person become a Christian? Well, they, once they believe, how do you know that they've crossed over? And the way we know we've crossed over, especially when the church has downplayed the initial like ways that that was done, like baptism. Um, we have to come up with some way to know that you're in. And so the way we do that is the sinner's prayer, a, pray, a prayer, you say, that crosses you from this thing to the other. Um, whereas in the Bible, like, there are things you do. You, baptism is a way you identify yourself with Jesus Christ. But then it's also kind of recognized that, like, your life is going to change and that, that you now devote your loyalty somewhere else. And that's, like, the mark of a shift in you rather than a prayer that you said. Um, and so there are those things that get in there. There, there are some phrases, like one I want to talk about for just a bit here, that are, that are kind of a mix of both. Um, biblical, not fully biblical. Um, this one, that you would receive Christ into your heart, um, is a phrase to talk about. If you, if you are here tonight and you've heard this, you know, this sermon and you want to receive Christ into your heart with Every head bowed, every eye closed. That's another good evangelical phrase right there. Every head bowed, every eye closed, which is also kind of a weird thing because part of the major issue of becoming a Christian is that you publicly identify with Jesus, right? But at church camp, it's like, we swear, we won't tell anybody, all right, that you're going to be a Christian now. You can keep this as totally secret between us and you, okay? Um, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you would like to receive Christ into your heart tonight, then raise your hand. And, and this idea is actually of receiving Christ into your heart. Like that phrase never shows up anywhere in Scripture. Um, the idea of receiving Christ is there. Um, and, and in fact, there is actually at least once where it seems to be used in a, it is used in a salvation context. In John 1 where it says that Christ came to those who was, were His own. That is, He created everyone. And He comes to human beings, those who were His own, and yet His own did not receive Him. But to everyone who did receive him, but, but it never says this into their heart thing. I'm, a, I'm not saying that, that may be somewhat implied or something, but it doesn't say receive him into their heart as much as that they saw him for who he was and accepted him as he is. Um, far more often, every now and then it does talk about the fact that Christ is in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, phrases like this, that he is in us. Far more often in the scriptures, um, it's talked about this, that we are in Christ. Um, it's actually kind of the reverse is where the emphasis is that we get to be placed in Him and our identity and our righteousness and our blessing is in Him. Um, but this idea of receiving Christ is there in the Scriptures. It's actually in our text tonight. 
um, Jesus talks about receiving him. He's just not talking about your heart, and he's not talking about the way they, they talk to you about it with every head bowed and every eye closed. Um, he says it here in this text, um, chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. Let me read that to you again. Um, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Um, by the way, it's probably not the first time they've had this. We know for a fact, because of what we'll read later, that it's not the second time they've had this, or that it's, that it's, sorry, it's not the last time that they'll have this discussion again. And then we know from Luke's Gospel that this, they'll have this discussion yet again. Um, and so this is a big topic for the disciples, who is the greatest. Next chapter, it really does dig into it. And so next semester, we're going to get to talk uh, more in depth about this idea of being the greatest and, and what is entailed by that. But here's kind of one aspect of it that is um, spoken of here. He sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking, them in his, taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is Jesus talking about receiving Christ, receiving him into his life. One of the major ways that greatness is achieved or sought after and this is true today, and this was true all the way back then, greatness is achieved by association. Um, that, that I can, in a sense, kind of become, and, and, and hear me, I'm using that term greatness broadly um, to refer to anything, significance, popularity, notoriety, that I gain those from the people that I associate myself with. That those people that I am around um, give me some sense of identity and people can look at me and see who I'm with and, and put a label on my value, my greatness, my popularity just by seeing the kinds of people I hang around. And, and this, I mean, becomes most obvious if you start to take, uh, think in big terms. So imagine for a second that um, for whatever reason the President of the United States wants to come to your house for dinner. And and so he comes over and, and the, the huge motorcade pulls up in front of your house. You know for a fact that you would be in your window snapping pictures of that so you could Instagram that, right? Like I'm, I'm finding ways somehow to, to secretly, you know, act like I'm making a call and taking pictures of him while we're at dinner and tweeting that. Or, or, or anybody else, not, not the president, Kevin Durant. Or whoever. Do you remember a few years ago when... Katie came and he actually played flag football here at OSU. Um, and, and he kind of just showed up, said he wanted to play some football. Was on Twitter and somebody said, come play with us. So he came and played. And I mean, everybody's taking pictures of that. Everybody, because that's cool. Look who I just played football with. Look who I just hung out with. We, like, we want people to know when we're in association with significant people. That makes us significant. Um, we gain importance from those that we are around. And, and that's why it's so crazy. Jesus says, yeah, that's actually true. Um, you do get important from who you spend time with. And that's why, and he pulls this little kid over. That's why, that's why I want you hanging out with this guy. That's why I want you around him. And, and so he says, whoever would receive this child receives me. Scott said it. He's not saying because kids are cute. 
He's not saying because they're innocent and because they're pure. Um, and he's not saying because it looks really good on your Facebook account if you've got a picture of you with a little African orphan, right? Um, to, to make you look cool. He's not saying these things. Like Scott said, they were, they were by and large kind of considered, like they were loved in their families, um, but they needed to know their place and kind of stay out of the way of important people in society. In fact, in the very next chapter, Jesus is sitting in a house and he's teaching. And you know this story. Some people try to bring children up to Jesus for him to bless him, and the disciples rebuke them. Like, like not, not just kind of like, no, he's, he's too busy. They actually rebuke him as in, you ought to know better than to bring kids here in the presence of the rabbi while he's doing important things like teaching. Um, that's kids. That's, that what's, that's what kids were. They were, the, they were those little people that needed to stay out of the way of important things and important people. And Jesus, one of the few times that, that Mark describes him with a particular emotion, says Jesus was indignant with his disciples when they did that and called the kids over to himself. But this is kind of the idea they are, as, as Scott said, the people who are at the bottom rung of the ladder. No status. No power, no rights. That's why Jesus calls them over. He's using kids. Now, now, Jesus isn't just talking about, hey, you need to be really nice to kids. I don't think so, at least. I don't think the, the main idea is just be kind to children. He's using children because they are at the bottom rung to describe a particular kind of person. So he's talking about people who are socially invisible. He's talking about people who are unschooled, ignorant um, the kinds of people that, that aren't, um, aren't real well respected or, or invited to a lot of dinner parties. He's talking about the kind of people whose absence isn't really missed when they don't show up at the table or when they don't show up at church. Like, we don't notice, really, when they're not here. He's talking about um, people who are awkward to be around those who are not highly regarded. He's talking about people who can be neglected or who, or who can be dominated without people ever really noticing. And those kinds of people who are on the margins of society and the margins of my own circles and friends group. And he says, these are the kinds of people that I want you to receive. And not just that, he says this, when you receive them, you receive me. And if you receive me, you're not just receiving me, you're receiving the very one who sent me. You are receiving, in receiving insignificant people, in interacting with, in caring for, in loving insignificant people, you are interacting with and caring for and loving God Himself. That's a pretty big statement. It's a really big statement. So, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean like God is like, in that kid, um, like, like that, that's actually kind of he's hiding there or, or there's some way in which you, know, you don't know it but you're interacting with him. I don't, I don't think that's exactly what he's talking about. Um, so here's kind of a, here's, uh, an example or an illustration of I think what Jesus is getting at. A couple years ago, Scott and I went to go get um, LASIK, which I know, <laughs> cute, right? We even go get LASIK surgery together. Um, so... We were going to, to go get, as soon as I say that, I'm like, yeah, I know, whatever. So we go to get LASIK, and, and the reason we did this together is not because we do everything together and we're weird like that, but um, because we found a place 
that does that 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 actually does LASIK for free for missionaries and ministers. Um, but this place is in Ohio, and this place is. Um, you got to get on like a year-long waiting list. So our wife's kind of surprised us by getting us on this waiting list to do this thing. And so that's why we traveled together and hung out and were buddies. Um, well, no, yeah, it was, it was, it was. Hey, hey. Um, yeah, no, that was no. It's totally that. Totally that, buddy. Um, <laughs> so, um, remember that whole thing about receiving insignificant people. Um, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> come on, ah, oh, whatever, don't ah, oh, like ah, oh. <laughs> like, like his feelings are hurt. So anyway, to my point, <laughs> God, what's your feeling? I'm never going to get through this. <laughs> so anyway, and you're probably also wondering why I still have glasses. It's because, because, it, because it mostly worked for me, but didn't all the way work. So that's what you get with free LASIK, I guess. But um, So anyway, so we traveled there, but here's the deal. When you get LASIK, you don't just go there and get surgery done and then go home. You actually have to get checked on 24 hours later, which means we got to... We got to, first of all, we got to have a place to stay beforehand. Second of all, we got to have a place to stay while we're there. And we don't want to stay in a hotel because we're cheap. And so we ended up going there and traveling to Ohio and staying with strangers. Living in the house for a few days of people we had never met before and did not know. Uh, people who didn't really like care a whole lot about us and really just love us and think that it would be a blast to have us over at their house. We stayed there. And, and here's why. Their name was the Bogarts. And I remember, actually, I only remember, this is how close we were. I only remember the guy's name. It was a family. But I remember the guy's name was Denny. And I just remember that because I remember thinking, I thought Denny was a girl's name. But we stayed at, we stayed at the Bogarts' house. And, and they were these great people, these awesome people who were so kind to do this. But they didn't know us. The, the reason we were able to stay there is because Scott had a friend um, from California, from back in California, who knew these people who lived in Ohio. And what? Your real friend. (laughs) Um, So this real friend of Scott's calls these people in Ohio and says, hey, I got got a friend and his best buddy are coming to Ohio and they're coming there to, to get LASIK. They need a place to stay. Can they stay there? And, and the Bogarts are like, yeah, listen, if this is your friend, if this is someone you care about, then we'll care about them too. Then they can come live in our home. These are people who, if we passed them on the street, we'd be strangers. They wouldn't care for us. They wouldn't know us. They probably wouldn't interact with us. But the thing is, we were valuable to their friends, and so therefore we were valuable to them. Um, Their friend would receive us into their home, and so therefore they also, the Bogarts, were incredibly generous and these great people and received us into their home. And this is what he's talking about. In in a sense, even, if if the Bogarts were to reject us and say we want nothing to do with them, it's in a sense an affront to their friends. It's an affront to Scott's friend who values us. And this is the same concept, that when we receive these people, when we interact with them, we care for people who may be lower on the 
food chain, if you will, on the bottom rung of the ladder. We do that even if we don't know them, even if we may not, these would not be people we normally interact with. We do this because someone we care for, because the person who is most important in the world values them, and therefore I value them. Because Jesus values them, I value them. And, and that's the way those things interact. And for me to reject them is, in a sense, to kind of reject Jesus. Um, to value them is valuing Him. To receive them is receiving Him. Um, there's something, actually, this, this isn't the only text that kind of talks like this. There's, there's another text that talks about receiving people like this is like receiving Jesus. Um, the other text is a lot more scary. It's probably one of the scariest passages, in my opinion, in the Bible, and it's Matthew 25. Um, you can go ahead and go there if you want, because I actually I want to read through, not all of it, but, but a fair chunk of it. It's, it's in this context Jesus is talking about the end of history, when, when everything's over, and, and when He returns, and, and it says that at the end there, what He's going to do is divide everyone up into two categories. He's going to be put people on his right, he's going to put people on his left. And he's categorizing these two people as sheep and as goats. And, and this is what he says um, that he will say to these people who are on his right, who are the sheep. In verse Matthew 25, verse 34. Um, sorry, was it 34? Yeah. In 34 says this, Then the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty, and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so what he says is, every time you took care of one of these people, the least of these, and he is specific, we leave this actual little line out, my brothers, um, and that word actually can be translated my brothers and sisters, um, that, that when, you, when you took a brother or sister in Christ, those who were on the bottom rung and who were in desperate situations, and you cared for them in their need, he said, that was, you cared for me. You took care of me that way. Now, the reason this gets so scary is because he turns then to the other group, and he says the exact same thing in a negative way to them, and says, depart from me. Go off into judgment because you did not care for me when I was hungry. You didn't feed me. You didn't supply a drink for me when I was thirsty. You didn't clothe me when I was naked. You didn't take care of me as a stranger when I came in. And they said, no, 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 we, we never saw you anywhere, Lord. We promise you we would have taken care of you in that situation if we would have seen you. And he says, no, no, I was there. Every time you refused to take care of the least of my brothers, you were refusing me. You were turning me away. And so now I turn you away. And he sends them off into their judgment. A really freaky passage. A really scary idea for him to, to throw that out for us. I don't know about you. Uh, well, let me just say this. This is, I don't, I don't know if you've ever 
felt in your mind, I have many times, I imagine you have, that like you wish that Jesus were just here. Like what if he were, if only he could be like, I know he's here, I know he's with us through his spirit, but how great would it be if we could actually experience him like physically, if tangible Jesus were here for me to interact with and talk with, for me to actually express love to him, to be able to hug him or whatever else, like if he were here and tangible, and, and the Bible says that maybe as tangible as it gets, when we, when we talk about interacting with Jesus, is interacting with people who we deem to be insignificant. Like this is your chance. You want Jesus to be tangible? You want to interact with him? This is your chance, is what it says. And, and I, I can't help but read verses like verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. In prison and you came to me. Um, and he, here's me stepping into the political minefield, okay? Um, like I can't help but read a verse like that and, and not think of um, thousands of people fleeing the Middle East right now as refugees, um, running from a place that, that is supposed to be their home, that they wish they could be there. It's not that they're glad to be leaving. It's not that they're happy to have to pick up and leave everything they've known for their whole life, but for the safety of their family um, or for the ability to actually have some sort of income in a place where the economy is nothing now because it's war-torn. Um, for the sake of keeping their daughters safe from wicked, evil men, um, have to pick up and leave. And, and, and I can't help but thinking of them when I read passages like this. Um, and, and it just seems, so, so I, I recognize that this whole situation with all these refugees who are trying to get in is complicated. And, and I really am all for um, being as smart and wise as we can when it comes to security and when it comes to not just letting anybody walk through um, these doors and cross this border um, just because they want to. Oh, we got to do our homework. We got to do security stuff. We got to be smart and wise about these things. I just can't see like, how in the world we could say no to those people. Um, just carte blanche, just without any sort of consideration or thinking about it. Just no, we don't want you in because we're scared. Um, it just seems, seems crazy to me. And, and, and I also recognize this, that America is not the church, right? And so Jesus is giving his instructions to the church. And so I, I don't necessarily expect the American government to do everything that the church is supposed to do. Um, but I do expect like, the church to not like, rant and scream on Facebook uh, about trying to keep people out. Like That just seems, again, weird to me. Um, and, and so... Uh, so, so, so this is, this is the, and, and we even recognize, again, Jesus says to the least of these, my brothers. And so he does specifically qualify Christians, but I think, uh, A, that there are brothers and sisters of ours that are amongst that group of refugees that are coming in. And B, I believe that Jesus would say that it's still valuable, important to care for people even who are not Christians. Um, Christians get the first priority in the Bible um, over and over again, and that, that doesn't sound as cool, or that doesn't sound as sweet or as inclusive, but, but the Bible does always call us first to care for our brothers and sisters, but then also to care for those outside the church as well. But, but, so I recognize that the church in America can't be the same, and, 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 but, but I, I believe that we have some responsibility. Um, and I don't even know exactly what that looks like, right? I, I, I don't think there are a whole lot of refugees trying to pour into Oklahoma. 
And so I don't, I don't even know what that looks like for us and what our interaction needs to be in that. Um, perhaps that is giving money where we can to help in those situations. Perhaps that is writing to congressmen and asking them to be willing to be compassionate even as they try to be wise. Um, about these things, I, I, I don't know exactly, but but I believe um, I don't know. I believe that this is kind of what it means to be a Christian sometimes, or all the time, is that we we care for those who are in dire needs. Now, we are in Oklahoma, and you're not going to come in contact with a Syrian refugee tomorrow. And so, what do you do with this, aside from praying through maybe what God may want from you? in that whole area. But, but what do we do with this regularly? Well, I do have one more text that I think comes a little bit closer to home for us. So um, go to James 2 real quick, and we'll wrap up with this one. James 2, and we will uh, start at the very beginning of it. James 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And, and James calls out the church there because they had this habit of, and, and it actually this wasn't just like a church thing, this is just kind of normal in the culture, is that the most important people, when you came together for like a dinner party, the most important people would sit around the table in the center, and then of course the most important of the most important would be at the head of the table, and then you'd have other people who would be going, you get less important as you go down the table, and even less important than that as you kind of sit around the edges of the table, kind of eating off to the edges a little bit. And so this was just kind of normal practice in, in a lot of ways in that culture. But James says the church doesn't follow the normal practice of the rest of the culture. It doesn't, it doesn't live like this. Like everyone else does this, but in the church we don't show partiality. We don't differentiate between two different people. They're, they're brothers and sisters. That's what they are. And so we're all on this same footing before Christ in that. Now, like, I don't worry about us necessarily doing this thing that James talks about, in which we, you know, stand at the door and watch to see what people are wearing when they come in. Hey, you come on over here, hang out with me. Ugh, over to the corner, man, you go over there, right? Like, I don't, I don't see us differentiating or pushing people aside, but, like, I do totally see how easy it is for us to pay more attention to those who are more likable. Um... More, I don't even know if I like the word, but, but, but naturally popular, um, easy to be around. And, and, and that, that's just like natural human instinct that we, that we tend to surround ourselves with people who are more likable and who, whether we're even thinking this way in the moment or not, but those people who naturally kind of increase our status by being around them. Um, it's just... It's just our natural way 
of going about those things. And so we have those, that tendency, but he says there ought to be no partiality in the church, that there ought to be no attention or honor given. Now, hear me, I'm not saying that I think that all of us in here need to be the same kind of best friends with everybody in here, that we all need to care just about as much each other and hang out with everyone equally. Um, I don't think life works that way, and I, I get frustrated and annoyed when people start to throw that click word around when they describe churches or youth ministries or campus ministries. Yeah, I used to go to that church, but they're cliquish. And I want to say, maybe they just have good buddies. Right? Like, is it possible that there are some people that you're just naturally better friends with than others? Yes. Right? And so I'm, I'm okay with you being closer friends with some people in here than you are with others. But, but what I think should be true is not that we don't have best friends, but that when people come in here, that like they can't actually tell who is the more, like who is at the core of our group. That it's impossible to really distinguish who might be considered more likable or more popular on the outside of this building or on the outside of our church. Um, that just from the way we all interact and the amount of time we spend with one another, everyone in here, that it would be impossible to distinguish um, as you looked around. That's the way the church ought to look. And I think it ought to work that way outside the church as well, especially in the church, but even with people we interact with who might not be brothers and sisters, that we care for those who would be considered on the bottom rung socially, economically, um, I, I actually was struggling to figure out what to talk about tonight um, just because this passage is weird and, and seemingly kind of disconnected and there are all these little different things in here and, and my mind, I had a lot of other things going this week and so my mind was kind of everywhere and I could not figure out what to teach about and, and more and more it started feeling like this was the natural way to go, that this was the most likely one to talk about and, and even as I had that in my mind, I still um, didn't want to. Like a confession time. Didn't want to talk about this tonight. Um, and I didn't want to talk about this because I don't do very good at it. And because it makes me uncomfortable. And because I don't even know how, even when I want to, I don't even know what this looks like. Does this mean like, go just try to find homeless people and invite them over? Does this mean go over to Syria and, you know, stow somebody away in a suitcase with me? Like, I, like even, even when I want to do this, even in my better moments, I, I really honestly am a lot of times lost for how to go about it. And, and I recognize how natural it is for me to A, move closer to those people who sort of increase my status and I'm comfortable with, and also how natural it is for me to wall myself off from those people who make me uncomfortable. The problem is, Jesus says, when I do that, that I'm walling myself off from Him as well. And I don't want to do that. And I don't want us to do that. And I don't want you to do that. Um, and, and like I said, recognize the complexity and not having all the answers, but, but feeling like it just needs to be said because Jesus said it. Um, and so we're, we're going to take a, a few minutes here to, in just a minute, we're going to sing and, and, and do some worship together. Um, but until that time, kind of while, while they're getting set up here, I, I just want to give you a couple minutes to, to kind of think through this and, and listen to God on this. And yeah, listen and ask, is, is this me? Do I have this tendency to kind of wall myself off from those that might be sort of beneath me a little bit and to move closer to those that kind of increase my 
comfort and my status. And then this question, so what do I do? If, if that is me, what do I do about this? Like, how, what do you want me to do with this, God? How do I go about this? So, so over the next few minutes, um, take some time to pray and think about that. And, and then we'll spend some time singing together to wrap up tonight.